I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. In this episode, I continue my conversation with the essayist from the book Dangerous Discourses, Feminism, Gun Violence, and Civic Life. And today I talk with Dr. Ruth DeFoster. She's a terrorism scholar and an expert on mass shootings. And she's written a book titled Terrorizing the Masses, Identity, Mass Shootings, and the Media Construct of Terror. We walk through some of the worst mass shootings and discuss five conditions that almost always accompany these crimes, as well as the common features of men who carry out mass shootings. We also talk about how the evolving definition of terrorism and mass shootings affect the way we respond to and report on these events. Lastly, we discuss how media narratives romanticize, thus perpetuate a culture that encourages future mass shootings. So here is my conversation with Dr. Ruth DeFoster. Dr. Ruth DeFoster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you opened your book, Terrorizing the Masses, with some historical data on mass shootings. And for my memory, one of the earliest shootings that I'm familiar with happened 50 years ago in 1966. It was the, the clock tower shooting at the University of Texas. Yeah. And it was significant, but it didn't seem to change our culture in relation to how we think about mass shootings and the way we report on mass shootings. Why, why not? Well, that was arguably the first mass shooting of the modern era. There, of course, have been other mass shootings if you include acts of large-scale racist violence. But that was the first mass shooting that fit the mold that we now think of as being the sort of prototypical American mass shooting where you have this white male who, because of disordered thinking, because of rage and anger issues, decides to carry out this act of indiscriminate violence. I'm not sure why that particular shooting didn't spark more introspection on a societal level, but it certainly paved the way for the way that we understand mass shootings in the 21st century, which is to just to sort of shrug and move on. I mean, if you think about the response to the Las Vegas shooting, which you know included the, the shooting of hundreds of people in just a few minutes that took place just three weeks ago, it's already, it's not even a headline anymore. We've already moved on. It's just become so commonplace. And that was just the first in the line, unfortunately, of many, many mass shootings. Right. I noticed that myself and, and, you know, every day or so, every couple of days or so, I try to tweet something about it or post something on social media to remind people that we have moved on and that we shouldn't move on. Because as you note in your book, the frequency, the window of time between mass shootings has increased quite, quite dramatically. I think some of the windows that you gave were between 1982 and 2011. I think there was something like a mass shooting every 200 days. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through some of the, the numbers? So like terrorism, mass shooting is a term that's ill-defined. It, it depends on what you mean by a mass shooting. This is part of the problem with studying mass shootings and scholarship about mass shootings is that there, there's this disparate sense of what do we mean when we say mass shooting? There are sort of two schools of thought. The FBI terminology, the FBI definition of a mass shooting, which since 2008 has basically held that an event is a mass shooting if it involves gun violence committed by one person that takes the lives of at least four people in a single incident as opposed to one or more incidents over time, that would be designated as a spree shooting. Now, President Obama issued an executive order uh, sort of lobbying to get that threshold lowered to three. So instead of four victims, his argument was, well, we should include shootings that include three fatalities, right? But most people still use the four victim standard. This is where it's really confusing. So if you look at the FBI data, then we have an average of 20 mass shootings a year, more or less, give or take. If you exclude certain types of shootings that don't fit that prototypical, very public mold, for example, gang violence, 
uh, domestic violence, the extension of previous feuds, that sort of thing. Then the number drops significantly, but it's still much higher than any other industrialized nation. So there have been at least 85 mass shootings in the United States in the last 30 years, 48 of which have occurred since 2006. And this is using that much more narrow definition. I use a much more narrow definition that excludes like gang violence and domestic violence and so forth and just includes those very public, I'm going to go out and shoot people indiscriminately in public. So this is something that's increasing in frequency. Yeah. So as you said, between 1982 and 2001, there was one on average about every 200 days. And between 2011 and 2014, the frequency increased to every 64 days. And of the 12 most deadly mass shootings that have taken place, in the last 50 years, seven have taken place in the last 10. And now, now that number is eight because, of course, we have the most deadly mass shooting in American history just this month. So as you said, though, this isn't new, but it, it is increasing in frequency. And you're seeing this phenomenon where these shooters are trying to top one another. These men are trying to sort of achieve this sort of infamy that comes along with being the most deadly mass shooter ever. Right. So using the most narrow definition is there a single reason that we can point to for this dramatic shift in the trajectory of the frequency of shootings? Is there any one single reason or multiple reasons? I think there are three. I think there's a strong media component because these men who commit these shootings, and it is a, a masculine form of violence, overwhelmingly it's men who commit these shootings. Over 98% of mass shooters are male. Um, they're looking for infamy. Mass shootings are performances. This sort of attempt to achieve posthumous attention, to achieve a sort of masculine power that they felt they'd been denied while they were alive. I also think, I mean, clearly gun policy has a lot to do with this. The United States has the highest per capita rate of gun ownership of any country in the world, followed distantly by Yemen. We have over 300 million guns in the United States. That's just about one for every man, woman, and child in the United States. And we have some of the loosest and most lax gun laws of any industrialized nation. And it's not a coincidence. I mean, clearly, you know, these things go hand in hand. You look at rates of every rate of gun crime and gun violence in the United States is about 20 times that of any other industrialized nation. And even some of our cities, Baltimore, Chicago, have rates of gun violence that are comparable to what we would consider third world nations. There's the media component. There's gun policy. And then I argue in the book there's this strong strain of just toxic masculinity. I mean, the fact that th these shooters are all men, it's not something we usually talk about. It's not a causal factor that usually garners a lot of attention in media coverage. I mean, if you look at like CNN, for example, after Columbine or after a school shooting, they'll be talking about, you know, alienated youth and what's wrong with our kids. Well, it's not a question of what's wrong with all of our kids. It's just the boys and the men who are doing this. So, I mean, clearly, you know, girls and women also have access to violent video games and drugs and girls and women are mentally ill. We experience mental illness at the same rate as men, if not more. But we don't commit mass shootings. So why is that? And that's that's a big component. Right, so what, what made Columbine so pivotal? Yeah, so Columbine was such an interesting moment because obviously it wasn't the first mass shooting, as you said, the first sort of very public iteration of what we would consider the modern 21st century mass shooting happened in 1966. But Columbine was a unique cultural moment. So it was 1999, and it happened at this sort of this moment when we were all very focused on the impact of culture in our youth, and cable news had really just sort of gained prominence. So there was this media technology factor as well. And Columbine actually garnered more coverage in terms of sheer volume than any mass shooting before or since. 
So Columbine was the second largest story, second largest news story of the 1990s after O.J. Simpson. And it just, it garnered this incredible round-the-clock news coverage for, for weeks, for months, for years after. It just became this, this cultural icon that we, we all understand Columbine. And for some reason, the tropes and the explanations and the frames that came out of Columbine coverage have been repackaged and recycled in media coverage of almost every mass shooting since, especially any mass shooting that seems to fit that mold. We ask all these peripheral questions about, well, what kind of music did they listen to? Did they play violent video games? Were they bullied? Were they picked upon? So we have all these tropes about I'm sure you remember, right, watching TV at the time and, you know, hearing about the trench coat mafia or the fact that they listened to Marilyn Manson. Right. Dave Cullen wrote a great book called Columbine, in which he unpacked a lot of those assumptions that we made about those two shooters, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. And he basically argues that a lot of those arguments were wrong, that they really weren't particularly picked upon. They were fairly popular. They weren't members of this so-called trench coat mafia. And so a lot of these really simplistic arguments that we used about Columbine, turns out they weren't true. But those tropes still have a lot of sticking power. And we still refer back to those sort of simple understandings of what caused these young men to become violent in future mass shootings. So, I mean, Columbine just was incredibly influential. And in all of the research that I do now in in terms of media coverage of current mass shootings, one of the things I always look for is any reference to Columbine. And I find it again and again, I find all of these media commentators and journalists referring back to Columbine as this watershed moment where we were all forced to grapple with this American problem of mass shootings. And another thing that's interesting that I found that this term mass shooting didn't exist before Columbine. I mean, we had, of course, events that we would now call mass shootings, but we didn't call them mass shootings. So this term mass shooting emerged with Columbine. And that's part of why it was so influential that we created this umbrella term for us to understand this very specific type of violence. Right. No, I I actually did read the book Columbine and it's it's excellent. Everyone should read that book. Right. And I think the the real reasons he calls out in great detail, the real reasons behind why, why they did this. And one of them was, I think one of the shooters was suffering from clinical depression. He was quite depressed. Mm -hmm. And the other one I think was, I don't know if you, if he was diagnosed in retrospect or posthumously, but he was a, a narcissist. He was a sociopath. Yeah. Sociopath. Yeah. No, no, I mean, those things go hand in hand, but yeah. Right. So was this the first time that the media started to kind of develop this mythology around crimes like this, like crafting this kind of novelistic narrative? Yeah, I think so. I think Columbine is the moment where that really happened. It was this watershed moment for American culture where we all had to sort of, we had to create this myth around mass shootings and and we had to come up with a way to explain it. Because of course, as a sort of suburban and white form of violence, it was this type of violence that required an explanation in a way that urban violence doesn't in the mass media. We, we don't feel compelled to search for answers, right? If, if someone is killed in an urban context or someone who's non-white is murdered. But when it's this sort of surprising, and I'm putting this in air quotes, context of like a high school where, you know, this violence is shocking, then we're forced to craft these cultural narratives to make sense of it. And some of this comes down to, there's a term in social psychology, it's called fundamental attribution error. It's based in social identity theory, which is this idea that we all cognitively, we all form in-groups and out-groups based on our cultural identities, just naturally. But when it comes to crime and acts of violence, and when someone does something wrong, something that's objectively bad, when that person is a member of an in-group, 
a culturally hegemonic group that has a lot of power, a white person, a man, we tend to ascribe the reasons why they committed that act of violence to external factors. We say, just like the Columbine boys, we say they were bullied, they were picked on, they were spurned by women. Um, as in the case of like Cho Sung Wee or Elliot Roger, they couldn't get a date. All these external factors came to bear it and, and pushed them to the brink. And that's what made them snap. So we ascribe their violence and their badness to these outside factors. We say these outside things came in and made them bad. Whereas when you have an act of violence committed by someone who we perceive to be a member of an outgroup, someone who is non-white, someone who is not Christian, someone who's undocumented, we ascribe that badness, that violence to intrinsic internal factors. We say, they're just evil. They're just a bad person. And so we don't search for motives in the way that we did with Columbine. Right. And so you mentioned a study on rampage shootings by Catherine Newman, right? And she knows that there are always five consistent conditions in, in these shootings. I don't know if she's specifically talking about school shootings or just rampage shootings generally or mass shootings. What are those conditions? I know it's like social isolation, access to guns. Can you recall those? Yeah. So Catherine Newman wrote a great book about rampage shootings. And she is predominantly talking here about school shootings. But having done, you know, a decade of research at this point about lots and lots of different mass shootings, I think that these are pretty universal facets that underlie a lot of mass shootings. She says that rampage shootings almost always include five necessary conditions. She says the shooter has to perceive himself. And of course, she says himself here because shooters are almost always male as extremely marginal in the social worlds that matter to him. He must suffer from psychosocial problems like significant mental illness, abuse, or drug use that magnify the impact of this, this perceived marginality. She talks a little bit about media representation. She says that there have to be these cultural scripts, these prescriptions for behavior that are gleaned from news or entertainment media that have to be available to lead the way toward an attack. There have to be a failure of surveillance systems that are intended to identify troubled individuals before their problems be become extreme. And then finally, gun availability. So the fact that, you know, our gun laws in the United States are clinically insane. That underlies almost every mass shooting. Right, so what does she mean by media prescriptions? Well, this is partly what I argue in my book, too, that she's saying part of the reason that these shootings are increasing in frequency is because they garner so much media coverage. So there's this chicken and egg problem where if you are a man who has significant psychosocial or emotional problems and who has decided for whatever reason that committing a mass shooting is a way to sort of cement your masculine status as a powerful man, it's very easy to find examples of other men who've done this in the United States and to find these cases where these mass shooters have specifically, I mean, very deliberately applied media considerations to their shooting. I mean, you think about Cho Sung Wee in 2007 at the Virginia Tech shooting. He mailed a media kit to NBC News in between the two shootings. He created this kit with video and photos and a manifesto. Elliot Roger did the same thing at Isla Vista. The Charleston shooter, Dylan Roof, had, had an entire website that he'd created with all these materials in his manifesto. So increasingly, you're seeing these shooters who are creating, they're creating a media event. And that's what they're attempting to do is, is to use the news media in pursuit of their goal of infamy. So the media builds these narratives around either, you know, political motives or, you know, bullying in the case of Colin 
Columbine versus substance abuse, for instance, or mental illness, as in the case of, you know, the Columbine shooters, one suffered from clinical depression, except when it's used as a distraction from, you know, or having a lack of political action around gun reform. I mean, does the media just find these narratives sexier or more sensational? The drug use and the mental illness is a tricky question because, like, statistically, the mentally ill are not any more likely than any other group to commit acts of violence. They are more wildly more likely to become victims of violence. But when you combine that mental illness with these toxic masculine cultural scripts that tell boys and men that the only way to be powerful is to be physically imposing and to commit acts of violence, especially if they're immersed in these media environments that glorify that. If they're watching these films, if they're playing these first-person shooter games, as, for example, the Newtown shooter did over and over, that say, this is how you be a man. This is what manhood looks like. It's the combination of that media exposure, that toxic masculinity with mental illness. It's not just the mental illness. It's the combination of those two things together. Right. And I wanted to talk about the branding that you mentioned because they do brand themselves, sending media kits. And also there's a trend of taking kind of these hyper-masculinized photos of themselves. Yeah. Well, two of the cases I look at in the book are the Charleston church shooting and the Orlando nightclub shooting. And one of the things that I just was really struck by when I started doing research into these two cases is how similar these two shooters were. They weren't presented as being particularly similar in news reporting about these two cases. One was presented as a terrorist while one was this sort of mentally ill boy next door gone wrong. But they're both these very young men in their 20s who self-radicalized on the internet and who, when you look at the photos they took of themselves, both clearly felt emasculated. Like they felt that they had had been denied some vision of like prototypical or powerful masculinity. They took these photos of themselves glowering into the camera. They took these photos of themselves where they're flexing and they're very carefully not smiling, of course, in any of them, where they're holding weapons, where they're approximating, they're they're copying these, these images that they see in films and in TV shows and in video games of these men who are adopting this incredibly bulky, powerful, hyper-masculine vision of, of what power looks like. And for both of these young men, they both had significant problems with drugs in the run-up to both of these shootings. They both had problems with women. And they both had issues in school where they had lashed out with violence because they felt as if they were not being taken seriously or because, or that they had been sort of emasculated or picked upon by, by other students or that their manhood had been questioned. There just were so many similarities. And when you look at the photos of the, that they took of themselves, it, it just becomes really clear that they were trying to sort of play this part and they felt that they'd fallen short of this standard. Right. And what's really interesting about those two cases is that despite their similarities in their lives, the media framed them quite differently in relation to race, right? So how did the media frame these two shooters who were so similar? Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things for me was discovering how differently these two cases were framed. I mean, to begin with, the Orlando shooting garnered almost twice as much coverage as the Charleston shooting. And it was a more deadly attack. So, I mean, there's that in terms of casualties. There were more people who died as a result of that shooting. But if you look at the the similarities, I mean, these, these are two young men who are almost identical. They both, I mean, neither of them had any ties to any broader terrorist organization beyond themselves. They both had an interest that they fueled online 
in isolation by themselves. They sort of self-radicalized on the internet. In Omar Mateen's case, of course, he was watching sermons by Anwar al-Wallahi. He was on al-Qaeda websites and ISIL websites. In Dylan Roof's case, he was on the KKK websites, League of the South, Aryan Nations, and was self-radicalizing on, on those websites. But it was really interesting to see just the different language that was applied to these two young men. I mean, for one thing, the term terrorist was almost never applied to Dylan Roof. He was not described as a terrorist, despite the fact that in his own words, he planned to start a race war and that this was his goal with this mass shooting was to start a war that would encompass the entire United States. I mean, he obviously was deluded, but this is what this is what he wanted to do. Now, Omar Mateen had the same goal, right, that he envisioned himself as being an ISIL soldier or, or something. And he you know, in his 911 call during the shooting, he pledged allegiance to ISIS. That's a low bar for, for being a terrorist if all you have to do is say that you are. So, so it raised these questions of, is it enough to think of yourself as a terrorist? Does that make you a terrorist? Because they both thought of themselves as terrorists. There's no question. But only one of them was called a terrorist. And there's no question in my mind, there's no question based on the media coverage that it received that that's because of his Muslim identity and not because of any broader ties to any organization. He didn't have them. There, there was nothing there. And this was a guy, Omar Mateen, who had such significant psychosocial and emotional problems in the years prior to the shooting that he actually had been investigated by the FBI because he claimed to have ties to al-Qaeda and he claimed to be the nephew of Osama bin Laden and so forth. These claims were lies. He made them up. I mean, this was an attention-seeking gesture. So here's this guy who, who was just so incredibly troubled. And finally felt, well, I'm going to show them, right? I'm going to finally be powerful. And it's the same thing with Dylan Roof. But Dylan Roof, overwhelmingly in media coverage, over and over, they described how young he was. In, in this cable news coverage, talked about his baby face as he sat in court and how young he looked and what a young man he was and what a waste of his future that this, this tragedy was. I never saw that with Omar Mateen, even though they were both in their 20s. So that was another big difference. You know, I remember that coverage and I remember the media saying how it was such a waste, right? And, you know, I'm ashamed to say that I bought into that narrative about his youthful appearance. And I remember thinking myself that, you know, he just looked like mm -hmm. a kid. I mean, Omar Mateen was a father. He had a child. That's a waste, too. I mean, there, here's a here's a boy right. who's going to grow up without his father. I mean, no matter how you frame it, it's, it's a waste of a life. But it's interesting that that only gets applied to the white shooter. Right. Right. And one of the things that I've noticed in the trends of media coverage is that they try to politicize the shooting. And I think it's really interesting when I see them trying to apply political motives to a shooting that obviously had no political motive. Right? And they mm -hmm. do these kind of gymnastics. So I've studied a lot of mass shootings. One of the ones where that was particularly predominant was the Tucson shooting of um, Gabrielle Giffords at a Congress on Your Corner incident in, in Tucson. Right. And Jared Loeffner was the shooter in that case. And this was during a period where we, we really had this well, not as much as we do now, but arguably very hyper-partisan media environment. And the, the initial argument was that perhaps Jared Loeffner had been inspired by a target map that Sarah Palin had put on her website where she literally put rifle sites over different congressional districts where she was keen to unseat the Democratic incumbents. And so there was a lot of this conversation about, well, you know, was he inspired by this map on Sarah Palin's website? Of course he wasn't. This is another man who was incredibly mentally ill, who was incredibly troubled. He had no coherent political ideology. But before any of this came out, 
you, you saw both sides coming out and, and laying the blame for this shooting at the feet of the other party and not at the feet of gun laws that allowed a deeply mentally disturbed man to legally purchase deadly weapons. Like that, that was the problem. But instead, we got this political and this media narrative about political incivility of all things to the degree that, I mean, it, it dominated news coverage of the Tucson shooting. And it was all about political incivility. Has our political rhetoric become too incivil? Of course it has, but that's not what made the shooting happen. And even to the point that in the State of the Union address, if I'm not mistaken, members of Congress brought bipartisan dates with them like as a show right. of their political civility <laughs> as this sort of, which achieves nothing. Like that doesn't change our gun laws, but it, but it made a good show, right? I mean, it made it for a good sort of short news story. You know, what's really scary about that. So not only does the media shape the culture of society, right? It also shapes the thinking of our politicians. I mean, they're part of society, but you would think that they would be able to be more sophisticated and look past what the media narrative is, but it, it turns out that, that they aren't apparently. No. So I'm in mass communication and there's a mass communication theory. It's called agenda setting that a couple of researchers found in the late 1960s. It basically found that the American mass media, they're not particularly good at telling you what to think, but they're really good at telling you what to think about. So in any given political landscape, if you compare the top 10 issues that are depicted in media coverage, political issues, social issues, and you map them one-to-one onto survey data or poll data where you ask people, what are the 10 most important issues in America today? They will always, almost always be a one-to-one comparison. So they set the agenda for telling us what's important. And I'm, I'm a former print journalist. So, I mean, I understand that it's a difficult professional, but it, it is a powerful role, right? I mean, where they're setting the agenda, they're framing these these incredibly important social and political issues for people who will never experience them personally. We, we experience almost everything through the lens of the mass media. So, you know, yeah, politicians aren't immune to this either. So what impact has the Trump administration had on mass shootings and how we cover them and how we think about them? I think it's had an enormous impact. I mean, we, we have you know, an administration standing behind a president who calls black NFL players sons of bitches while simultaneously, you know, out of the other side of his mouth saying that there were many fine people among the white supremacists in Charlottesville who literally murdered an innocent young woman. I mean, this is a man for whom overt racism and racial animus was a cornerstone of his campaign. And it's a cornerstone of his presidency too. And so I think it's so telling that Trump and members of the Trump administration have little to nothing to say about white shooters and about white terrorists, but they are always ready to condemn the merest hint of Islamic extremism and to use it as a sort of political cudgel to argue that Muslims should be banned from the United States. And he and his administration have even argued that news media are actively hiding the truth about Islamic extremism. This is like really insidious Orwellian stuff. Um, You probably remember Kellyanne Conway's just bizarre invocation of an imaginary terrorist attack. Remember this, the Bowling Green massacre? Yes. (laughs) She referred to this in two separate interviews and she used it to justify President Trump's travel ban, barring citizens from Muslim countries from entering the United States. And in February, the White House took this rhetoric a step further when Trump claimed, and this is a quote, that the very, very dishonest press was deliberately and maliciously refusing to report upon acts of terror. And when they were pressed to provide evidence for this claim, they, they very hastily released this this list of 78 incidents that they asserted were underrepresented, 
And and I mean, the list was absurd, right? It had numerous holes. There were lots of entries that lack data. They misspelled persons. They misspelled San Bernardino. They misspelled the word attacker. (laughs) It was roundly castigated by news outlets worldwide for the inclusion of all these incidents that obviously were not underreported, like the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting, which received wall-to-wall coverage, the 2016 bombings in Brussels. No one could claim with a straight face that these acts were ignored or suppressed. But they did. But the list for me as a, as a terrorism scholar and as someone who studies mass shootings, this list provided me with something else, something that was really illuminating. And it was this fascinating and terrifying snapshot of the subjective and self-serving way that the Trump White House defines terror. So the minor and lesser known incidents that made this list really only seem to have one thing in common. They were committed by Muslims. Meanwhile, the list completely omitted attacks that were committed by white supremacists during the same period. The 2014 murder of three people at a Jewish community center in Kansas. There was a 2014 murder of police officers in Las Vegas. The Charleston church shooting in 2015. The January murder of six people at a mosque in Quebec by Alexander B. Sinet. Those omissions speak volumes because this administration is is not shy about the fact that it asserts that only Muslims can be terrorists. They make no secret of this. But it's a dangerous historical road to go down. And I'm particularly reminded of this when I read this week that under Trump, the FBI's counterterrorism division just widened its domestic terrorism designation to include what it calls black identity extremists. This is disturbing for a couple of reasons, because A, it's clearly a thinly veiled attempt to justify surveillance on groups like Black Lives Matter and other black activist groups. And B, this designation doesn't describe any meaningful terrorist movement at all or any credible threat. Black Lives Matter is not a terrorist organization. It's a decentralized, it's an amorphous group of overwhelmingly peaceful activists who are now enduring the same kind of sort of hateful slander that the 20th century civil rights movement faced. But meanwhile, at the same time, since 2008, since the election of Barack Obama for the first time, there's been this dramatic rise nationwide in right-wing white nationalist hate groups. And for Americans, if you live in the United States, These far-right groups pose a far greater statistical threat to your health and your happiness and your safety in terms of violence and annual fatalities than any international Islamic terrorism. But this administration just isn't concerned with facts. They're concerned with pushing this narrative that demonizes and marginalizes groups that have little social power, religious, ethnic, racial minorities, undocumented children under DACA, Muslims, women, Black Americans. They're concerned with just fueling this racist white rage that keeps them in power. You know, one of the patterns that you often see in media coverage is how violence in urban areas is treated, right? Chicago is a really popular one for the right. And on the left, you know, I think it's just, you know, overlooked. Yeah. I mean, you see, that's a narrative that's come up quite a bit from the administration is to sort of pivot to Chicago. Anytime someone talks about, for example, gun legislation or common sense gun reform, we'll say, well, look at Chicago that has some of the tightest gun laws in the nation and yet some of the highest rates of gun violence. Of course, the reason for that is because all of the surrounding vicinities areas and states have incredibly lax gun laws and it's no trick at all to put a gun in your back seat and drive it into Chicago, which is exactly what happens. But that doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative, I mean, it's relying on this dog whistle racial politics that demonizes and blames people of color for violence in their own communities while refusing to grapple with white violence and far right terror. So I want to ask you about Australia because they often come up when we talk about solutions to gun violence and mass shootings. I mean, they had a rather infamous mass shooting in the mid 90s, I think. And following that, they took some really extreme measures, including this um, gun buyback program. Could something like Mm -hmm. that work here in the U.S.? So, yeah, there was there was 
it was in 1996, and there were actually two shootings that month. There was one in Dunblane, Scotland, and there was one in Port Arthur, Tasmania, which is in Australia. And both of these shootings, which were analogous to Newtown, they involved very small children. They were very deadly. They prompted just these immediate sweeping sets of gun reforms in both countries. You got buyback programs, increased background checks, new bans on previously legal weapons. And as you said, I mean, here in the United States, we've had dozens of mass shootings since 1996. But there's been one in the UK during that period, and there have been zero in Australia. And at the same time, we now have 20 years of data. We have 20 years of public health uh, research on this gun buyback program. And they found that there was an 80% drop in firearm suicide rates in Australia since 1996, and an almost 60% drop in gun-related homicides. That's enormous. And in the UK, every year has seen successive drops in the rates of gun crimes. So clearly it works, but there's a couple of factors here that we have that the UK and Australia don't have. The first is we have the Second Amendment, which is you know part of the, our constitution and is generally understood, at least in the 21st century, to represent this kind of like unmitigated and free-for-all access to any gun you want. And then we also have the influence of the gun lobby, which is you know this incredibly, incredibly influential force in Washington that pours billions of dollars into our political landscape to try to maintain their power. And so, I mean, these two factors taken together, I mean, it certainly is, it's going to be challenging. I tend to be somewhat cynical about the likelihood of any meaningful gun legislation being passed in the foreseeable future. I think if we couldn't do it after Newtown, if the murder of 20 little babies wasn't enough to do it, I don't know what will be. We're also contending with this media landscape that is dominated by fake news, frankly. I mean, by there are people who believe that Newtown didn't happen. There are a lot of people who believe that Newtown didn't happen, that it was a left-wing conspiracy to try to take their guns. And when you're contending with that kind of irrational, I mean, frankly, horrifying irrationality, it's hard to know how to combat that beyond just the sort of steady drip of media literacy uh, and one-to-one education. How Do you know how and why that started about Newtown? I mean, that's just it's just so remarkable to me. I don't understand it. I don't know where it began. If I had to guess, I would say probably on 4chan or Reddit, but it's it became really popular on YouTube. So there were a lot of these videos. I don't recommend looking these up, by the way, unless no. you want to lose your lunch. But there are a lot of people on YouTube who have created these videos where they claim that there were actors that they found in like news coverage of Newtown, the Sandy Hook shooting, and that a lot of the people who claimed to be injured or who claimed to, to lose children were lying. They've formed these campaigns of harassment against some of these parents who lost their little five and six-year-old children. It's unbelievably pervasive. I can't believe how many people believe this. Um, it sort of leads me to despair when I go down that that little right. rabbit hole. Yeah. But I, I don't know what's fueling it. I think it I think part of it might be this kind of this kind of millennial frustration that we have with you know, everything in our world being corporatized and never feeling like we have the full story. I see this among my students a lot where they feel like everyone is lying to them. They they just, they don't have a lot of faith in power structures and in politics or in media. And it's very hard for them to parse what's real and what's not. And I mean, certainly now, of course, with the 2016 election and the influence of Russia, I mean, the, the, the waters are just becoming more muddied all the time. I mean, who's a bot? Who's not? What's real? And I think for people who don't have a lot of education in, in sort of how to become media literate consumers, it can be tricky for them 
and maybe I'm being too charitable here, but it can be tricky for them to sort of navigate what to trust and what not to trust and what to believe. I mean, clearly the argument that Newtown didn't happen is like that, that belongs in the completely bonkers strain of this kind of ideology that's right up there with, you know, September 11th was an inside job. But for some reason, like there, there's some, there's something that's resonating with people that with especially certain strains of young people today where they always want to feel like they have some insider knowledge that no one else has. And sometimes that manifests itself in really disturbing ways on the internet. Yeah, you know, I've noticed this in the past couple of years, especially during the 2016 election with the younger voting bloc, you know, these high levels of distrust and a tendency to buy into some of those narratives, you know, whose veracity would have been questioned by more mature voters. And I'm talking about, you know, voters, young voters on the left. Yeah, some of that, I mean, some of the Sanders supporters have promulgated <laughs> during the election, some of the most, I mean, not all of them, but there was a solid sort of sub subtext there with a few groups that promulgated some of the most sexist, gendered, racist, utterly untrue narratives that really muddied the waters in the 2016 presidential election. I mean, that just were obviously false. This is not intended as a dig at millennials. I'm a millennial. My students are millennials. But like, we have to be more discerning and more thoughtful about the media that we consume. And I say this to my students all the time because I, I teach at a women's college and they tend to be very dismissive of, you know, right wing and conservative media like Breitbart or the Drudge Report or Fox. And I say, that's great. But if, if that's what you believe, and, and I, I stand by that, I think they're garbage. You got to stop sharing stuff from like the other 98% or Occupy Democrats. That's not news. That's partisan red meat. That's oftentimes isn't true. Like you, you have to be better than that. So if, if you think that you're better than, you know, this sort of clickbaity hack partisan garbage, well, you have to live by that. You have to abide by that on the left as well as the right. So going back to the Australian gun buyback, I remember a moment during the 2016 election, I had a glimmer of hope when I heard Hillary Clinton bring up the Australian gun buyback program. And I thought, oh, this is great, because at the time we all thought that, you know, she was a shoe-in and she would win. And of course, we're crestfallen after November November 8th. And I'm just curious, there aren't many Democratic politicians talking about policies like this. And I guess my, my position is, like, at this juncture, at this point, what do they have to lose? They have to lose their positions of power. And this is where the Australian case is so interesting, because in order to pass those gun reforms, there was a whole generation of conservative Australian politicians who sacrificed their careers and their jobs on the altar of doing the right thing. And I have incredible respect for that. These are men and women of integrity who knew they weren't going to get reelected if they pushed this thing. But they knew that it was still the right thing to do nonetheless. And we need men and women of integrity like that in public office here in the United States who are more interested in doing what's right than maintaining their position of power. And I, until we see that, it's not going to happen. One of the things I often hear in the media in relation to these shootings is that the shooter must have snapped, right? You hear the word snapped all the time. Yeah, there's a TV show by that name. <laughs> oh, that's right. There is a TV show yeah. called Snap. That's right. It's, it's you know. Um, so what is the problem with framing these shootings or the shooters as having snapped? Well, the problem is that mass shooters don't snap. They predictably move down a path toward violence. And in every mass shooting I've ever studied, this wasn't a case where, you know, this guy's going about his life and one day he just can't take it anymore. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back and he goes off. It does not happen like that. These are men who plan these shootings in advance, carefully, meticulously, with an enormous amount of forethought. It's not a matter of snapping. And so to reduce it to just 
the simple explanatory variable of it. Well, first of all, it suggests that it wasn't their fault, right? That these external things just built up and built up until they couldn't take it anymore. Second of all, it's just false. So we, we tend to have this image of, you know, that anyone could just become violent. It, and that's just not true because again, this isn't, this isn't a problem that's committed by this accurate cross-section of all Americans. This is a crime that's committed by men. It's only men who are doing this. So why is that? It's not because they're snapping. It's because of this confluence of other social elements. And it's because they're planning to do it. They're choosing to commit mass shootings. Let's talk a bit about the misogyny and the misogynistic element of these shootings. There isn't always evidence of romantic rejection in the picture, right? So in what ways are all of these shootings misogynistic in nature? Well, so, I mean, there's a scholar named Jackson Katz, and he has a great documentary film that I highly recommend about this. It's called Tough Guys. That's G-U-I-S-T, where he talks a little bit about just the fact of masculine violence as itself being a facet of misogyny that, you know, 90% of convicted murderers are male. What does that mean? Is that misogynistic violence? Arguably, yes. You know, 99% of convicted rapists are male. The vast overwhelming majority of mass shooters are male. Now, in, in all of these cases, they don't necessarily have an explicit component of romantic rejection or of hatred of women, but in a surprising number of them, they do. I mean, if you look at like Elliot Rogers' video that he put on YouTube before he committed the Isla Vista shooting, where he talks about his alienation and romantic rejection from women, the Red Lake School Massacre, the Virginia Tech shooting, the Northern Illinois University shooting, Omar Mateen, Nadal Hassan, all of the cases that I look at in my book. In every one of those cases, these are men who either had been rejected by women or felt emasculated or were worried about some component of their ability to fulfill their imagined destiny as a masculine man. So in one case, for example, there was a soldier who was facing a pending sexual harassment charge from a fellow soldier and they were deployed. And he was concerned enough about that that he felt it was going to destroy his career and destroy his reputation that he was prompted to commit this shooting. So there's always, I mean, almost always, I'm hesitant to use absolutes, but there's almost always this undercurrent of very clear undercurrent of toxic masculinity and of this rage and hatred toward women. And there's a, a scholar named Carol Stabile, whose work I love, and she's talked a lot about reframing the idea of mass shooters into suicide mass shooters because because almost all of these men plan to die in the attack. The media materials that they create are essentially suicide notes. And so she talks a lot about how we have to understand the materials that they're creating as basically the, the sort of pay in this, this suicide note that justifies their existence. And that overwhelmingly, in, in so many of these cases, in all of the cases that I've looked at, there's some subtext there of feeling as though they've fallen short of being appropriately or properly powerful and masculine. And that often they lay the blame for this at the feet of women and explicitly say that they're going to punish women for this. A lot of these mass shooters have long histories of domestic violence and domestic assault. I mean, this is not a coincidence. Again, this, this points to the fact that they don't snap. These are men who've already been violent and typically have already been violent toward people who can't fight back, children, women. Right. I was just going to say that there, there's this sense of entitlement. They're entitled to have the yes. women that they want, right? And so you mm -hmm. know, if they can't have that, they'll just take it out on everyone else and then they'll, you know, then they yes. commit suicide. It's like the idea of the friend zone. <laughs> yeah. That, that, sense of entitlement that I have a 12 year old son and he watches Disney shows. And there was one show where they were talking about that. There was a subplot where these two male characters were talking about being friend zoned by a girl. And I just immediately turned it off. And I was like, there, there's no such thing as a friend zone. Girls don't owe you anything. 
And, you know, women's default mode is not sexual partner and you're not entitled to women. My poor son. He's like, okay. But I mean, that's the pervasive, like that's the cultural narrative that young men and young boys get is that if you can't get a girl, there's something wrong with you. You're not powerful. You're not masculine. I have to look out for that. And my my son's only six, but I have to look out for that messaging and make sure I turn it off in time. Good grief. It is ubiquitous. I have three sons and you would be shocked. I mean, it is everywhere. It's in the most, the places you would never expect. Right. So I think the case that you were referring to earlier is John Russell, right? Yeah. The one who yeah. was, had a, a pending sexual harassment case. Mm-hmm. And you know, that one was really hard for me to read. You know, mm-hmm. he was also suffering from mental illness. And when I read through the story, I mean, he practically begged for help. He begged mm-hmm. for early retirement. And that's just another piece. I mean, that's another function of toxic masculinity that here was a man who recognized, he recognized that he was going to commit an act of violence. He knew. And he begged to be discharged. And so did William Kreutzer in the 1996 shooting, um, or 1995 shooting Fort Bragg, who said, look, I have these images. I'm going to hurt someone. I'm going to hurt myself and I'm going to hurt someone. And he was laughed at. And in fact, his commanding officer this is a quote, said he's too much of a pussy All right. to ever carry out such an attack. So there's that gendered language for you that he's he's too much of a woman. He'll never be able to do it. And of course he did. Right. So, I mean, so here are these these surveillance systems that are intended to catch just these cases where you have, in, in the case of Russell, he's in the theater of war. He's in an active wartime capacity. He's a soldier who's fighting, who's clearly under a lot of psychological stress and he begs for help and he doesn't get it. And that's all too common, unfortunately. Right. So if the media is creating a false narrative and they're focusing on the wrong thing, what should they actually be focusing on? Well, you know, what's interesting is I've done a little bit of international sort of cross-cultural analysis of how different countries cover mass shootings. And one of the papers I wrote was with a Finnish Fulbright scholar who was from Helsinki, Finland. And there have been a couple of mass shootings in Finland in the last 15 years or so. And one of them was just around the same time as the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007. It was in a Finnish city called Kawayoki. And we looked at Finnish media coverage of these two mass shootings that had taken place and American media coverage. And it was so stark. It was so interesting because for one thing, I don't know if this is feasible here, but the Finnish newspapers didn't name the shooter. They denied him that posthumous infamy and that fame that he was looking for. There was absolutely no conversation about him or what made him snap or what made him do it or pictures of him or digging into his past. It was all about the victims. It was all about talking about Finland as a whole and this very like collectivist communal vision of how we will move forward together to heal from this. I mean, so there was this sort of full-throated rejection of everything that these shooters stood for. And I really admired that. I thought that was something that was really cool that you, you just don't see in American coverage. I would like to see, if I were queen of the world, I would like to see every newsroom have very clear guidelines about how to cover and how to talk about mass shootings in the same way that, for example, newsrooms have guidelines about how to talk about rape victims. So when I worked, I worked in a newsroom, we had a very clear guideline that you never name rape victims ever, no matter what. Even if it's publicly available information, you do not print their name unless they come to you and say, please print my name. I want to tell my story. That's the only circumstance where you print their name. I would like news organizations and newsrooms take a long, hard look at their guidelines and actually come up with these very clear standards for how to report on mass shootings. You'll always have these media organizations, the tabloids and so forth that are scraping the bottom of the barrel. But I think it would be really meaningful if some of these big organizations and big news outlets, especially broadcast media like CNN, were to say, 
you know, let's take a long, hard look at the role that we are playing in romanticizing and sensationalizing some of these mass shootings and in maybe giving other troubled men sort of an inspiration about what they might do in the future. And this is particularly interesting because there's actually public health research, brand new public health research that suggests that gun violence functions much in the same way that disease does in that it is contagious. It functions as a sort of social contagion. So if you you can actually map it neighborhood by neighborhood in cities that have a lot of gun violence and see how it spreads. There's a contagion effect in media coverage of mass shootings as well. There's a period right after a large-scale mass shooting takes place where there is a statistically significant chance, much higher chance, of another mass shooting taking place in that four or five-day span after a mass shooting because of this contagion and this copycat effect. So I think news organizations have to take a look at the role that they're playing and, and be very careful not to sensationalize these attacks and not to romanticize or to give infamy to these men for whom that's their their goal in committing these these crimes. All right. But media organizations, I mean, they're responsible for their own guidelines, right? And the thing is, is that, you know, sensationalized headlines equal dollars, right? It goes straight back to their revenue. So they don't really have an incentive, unfortunately. It should be an incentive that they're feeding this culture and feeding the cycle that should be an incentive. But either they are unaware, right? Or to be more cynical about it, they are looking to the bottom line. Well, particularly in broadcast media, there's this very clear line between print media and broadcast media because they're both reliant on an advertising model. But particularly for like cable news outlets like Fox News, like MSNBC, like CNN, they're relying on churning out the type of audience that advertisers want. So they're trying to appeal to a very specific type of audience that's considered lucrative to advertisers. And that comes back to political economy and ownership. That's why like CNN, for example... They've found themselves adrift ever since MSNBC and Fox have taken up these these political polls, right? That they've they've got the partisan ends of the spectrum. CNN's found itself kind of floundering, and what they've ended up doing, and they've been open about this, is their new goal is to appeal to a lucrative advertising demographic, which is like young white middle income men who are eighteen to thirty nine years old. So that's why you see this overrepresentation of stories and issues that affect arguably that demographic. So like the Malaysian aircraft that crashed into the sea. Remember that last year? Yeah. Got wall-to-wall, round-the-clock coverage on CNN. Not because it was newsworthy, not because it was interesting, not because it was important. It crashed in the sea. That's the only thing that could have possibly happened. But because they found that this narrow, lucrative advertising demographic that was bringing in their, their ad dollars liked that story. And so they're like, well, we'll just keep running with it. So that's, I mean, that's the danger when, you know, news is tied to this advertising model that you can lose some of that objective fact-checking fourth estate function of what the news media should do. Right. I was talking about this to actually Pamela Nettleton. She's written essays about domestic violence and how the media reports on domestic violence. And some of the same trends are there in that they kind of downplay or headlines about domestic violence amusing right? Which kind of feeds into the cycle of domestic violence. And the same thing with, I did an earlier podcast on the way the media portrays female politicians. I mean, so it's it's just kind of scary to me how much they shape our thinking and how much they shape our culture and our reaction to things, especially when it's, when the coverage is gendered, right? And especially when, I mean, so as a former journalist, you know, I know that most journalists are good people and they're just trying their best. It's, It's a tough job. No one ever writes you when you do a good job. They write you when you misspell their name, right? But all of these news organizations, are owned and controlled by basically six companies now. So we have this institutional fact 
that's going to trickle down and shape media coverage in all of these huge multinational, very powerful multimedia conglomerates. That, and so that institutional nature of that, the institutionalization of inequality in media coverage comes down to that, that ownership structure a lot of times. Right. So is there anything that we can do that, that consumers of these narratives can do to help shape them? Well, I, I'm really encouraged by a lot of the things I've been seeing on like social media, some of these sort of ground up, you know, hashtag activism and so forth about, and certainly after like the Las Vegas shooting, I didn't see a lot of media coverage that suggested that Paddock was a terrorist. I did see quite a lot of that argument on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. I mean, this very powerful kind of grassroots movement of young people, particularly understanding that there's a double standard and calling it out consistently and making sure to sort of evangelize their friends and say, hey, why do we call this guy a terrorist, but not this guy? And just continuously bringing that to the fore and making that a story so that we can't ignore it. I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about the degree to which any given consumer has a lot of power in our media landscape, particularly now that Comcast is one of the largest media companies, uh, the largest and most powerful media company in the United States. Uh, and they own, you know, they have this vertical integration thing happening where they own all the steps in the media process. But I think, you know, you can keep doing what you're doing and just being a quiet voice that continues to say, hey, this isn't right, and calling attention to inequity whenever you see it. Well, Dr. Ruth DeFoster, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight. 